You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Tonight, uh, as I was, you know, thinking of what to preach, knowing that I was scheduled, I, I was kind of reflecting on the summer, and and not necessarily exclusively due to, you know, pastor and his health, and you know that, you know, to to me, so, you know, just kind of showing up like, oh wow, I had I had no idea he was dealing with that, and maybe it took some of you by surprise as well, and it really just kind of put into perspective. When, when our church has busy seasons like the summer, we try to cram everything that we do in the warm months that oftentimes there's, there's personal things going on in our individual lives that, that can weigh on us heavily. And it's easy to feel like no one really seems to notice but, but us. And um, it's not to say that there, there are any bad things, but it seems like sometimes people are so, they're so busy. There's so many things going on that it's difficult to really take time and, and deal with the things that are going on in your life personally. And, and I'm, I'm normally geared to, to take a passage and try to analyze it, but, but tonight I, I, I felt burdened to do something a little bit different. Um, so the passage that we'll be in tonight is Mark chapter 5. If you would, take your Bibles, turn with me, and, and stand as we, as we read the passage. We'll be in Mark chapter 5. And uh, when you're there, we'll be, we'll be beginning in... In verse number 21. So Mark chapter 5, verse number 21. It says, And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come. And lay thy hands on her that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. And then Mark, Mark actually does something here. He, he, he tends to write stories in such a way that he'll sandwich a story into stories to convey a greater point. So, so then Mark kind of begins another story here in verse number 25. And he says, And a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing bettered but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, who, who touched my clothes? And, and this is kind of, to me, a point of comedy that, that Mark inserts here, because the disciples turn to remember, people are thronging them. They say, they say you know, Thou, thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou who touched me? Like, come on, Jesus, everybody's touching you. And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace, and be whole of thy plague. And with that, Mark ends this narrative of this woman and, and he returns to, 
to Jairus in verse number 35. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. And he asks him, Why troublest thou the master any further? And as soon as Jesus heard the words that were spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeth the tumult and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and mother of the damsel and them that were with him, being the, the disciples that he brought and entered in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha kumi, which is being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of twelve years. And they were astonished with a great astonishment, and he charged them straightly that no man should know it, and commanded that something should be given her to eat. Thank you. You may be seated. It's a, a story that perhaps many of us are all familiar with tonight. Jairus' daughter and the woman with the issue of blood, each, each caught in their own personal yet very serious crisis. If you would like, the, the story could be referred to as this. The title of my sermon would be this, in case you're interested. I don't usually do that, but the tale of two crises. And yes, I have had to defend that as a real word. I looked it up in the dictionary. Crises is the plural form of crisis. The tale of two crises. A dying daughter and an incurable disease. Now, what does Jesus do when approached with these situations? How does he respond as they unfold? What is Mark trying to tell us about Jesus and his concern for the crisis or the crises in our lives. The reason why I chose Mark tonight rather than there's a parallel account in the Gospel of Luke is because I'm fascinated by, Mike's, by Mark's style. I like it. Um, that when we read biblical accounts such as the Gospels, it's, it's easy for us as 21st century readers to, to kind of read it in only a surface level way, just as a narrative. Mark's just recounting events as they happened. And in reality, biblical writers... Um, at, the, at the time when they wrote the scriptures, um, were trying to accomplish a little bit more than, than simply recording events. Uh, they often would structure their writing in particular ways to achieve a particular result. Um, and, and, and Mark structures his account in a particular fashion that emphasizes action. Um, Mark was a follower of Peter. Mark himself was not a disciple, but he was very close with the apostle Peter. And it is often, it is well agreed upon by scholars that um, Mark's account is credible and that he got most of his information from Peter, uh, which is indicated by a lot of details in Mark concerning personal experiences of Peter. Um, so that's how that's kind of reinforced. The original, the original audience of Mark's gospel would have been Romans at the, at the church in Rome who were very much captivated. They, their culture was inundated by stories uh, primarily moved by action. And the only way to communicate action through story at this time was through the means by which the story was written. 
Um, and certain elements were often employed to give the readers at the time a sense of action that, like I said, we as 21st century readers sometimes tend to not appreciate the, t the intentionality of because in, in our day and age, we're conditioned that action, our primary source of action and being stimulated by action is going to be from a screen with a picture or a video. And so we don't really look for that in the texts that we read. Um, you, this is indicated a, a lot in Mark's gospel. He uses the word straightway and immediately. I mean, he's just constantly trying to keep things moving. Um, the, 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 really, the entire gospel is, is almost like the story of Jesus' life. It's like a play with, with scenes of action, and Jesus is the main character, and he's playing in these different roles and, and, and accomplishing a specific purpose while overall trying to present the message of Jesus Christ as, as the suffering son of man. And so with the understanding that we have now of not only what Mark is writing necessarily in terms of his recollection of something that happened, but he's trying to accomplish something with what he's writing and how he writes it by, by the way he sandwiches these stories together. Um, let's, let's go back. I'm, I'm going to try to go back and do something different tonight. I'm not really going to analyze the text so much as really go back and try to retell it to you, uh, but, but I'll, I'll have to apologize in advance. I'm going to take uh, a little bit of imaginative liberty here. Um, I, I, concerning some details that, that aren't explicitly stated in the text, however, like I said, given Mark's writing style, he, he tends to only add the necessary context for people to get the idea without detracting from the momentum of action. So if he spends too much time on details, then, then that could rob him of the effect of the action he's trying to create. So, so I'll admit, I'm going to include details that aren't explicitly given in the text, but, but I would readily defend, and I think by the end uh, you will readily defend, that, that there, these can be quite easily assumed and certainly would have been by the original audience. And what I really want us to strive to do tonight in our mind is put us there in this moment with Jesus and with Jairus and with this woman. So without further ado, imagine with me the events of the story. So scene, scene number one, if you would call it. Jairus stands beside the bedside of his daughter and he watches her lie still, but this, this is no peaceful rest that she's in. The doctors, perhaps, that he had brought in to, to look at her and try to determine the cause of what was going on had no answers. And it was quite evident that as the illness continued to worsen, that he was being forced to watch the life slowly drain from the frail body of his little girl. There is nothing more that can be done. And his, he watches as his daughter is at death's door. But somewhere in the back of his mind, he remembers perhaps a conversation at the synagogue where he is in high standing. He heard that a man named Jesus would be passing through town. He's heard many things about this Jesus fellow. He knows that the religious authorities in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't seem to like him, the things that he said, because he often would say things in a, in a controversial way. He would buck against traditions and, and be, preach things with an authority that people had never heard before. But the common, the common Jewry, the common people with whom he belonged seemed to like him. Like I said, he preached with an authority that was unheard of from other teachers, but most of all, people seemed very interested in the miracles that seemed to happen when Jesus came to town. According to many, this Jesus possessed the power to heal. 
Whether they were the sick, the broken, the lame, the demon-possessed, Jesus healed them all. There was no time. No one could answer Jairus' pleas for help in this crisis. No doctors, no men of medicine. His doctor's life hung on the balance solely of Jairus' ability to make it to Jesus, the only one left with any power to help in this crisis at all. Jairus noticed that people seemed to be headed out of town toward the sea. There was not much else that would create a stir such a stir in town with the exception of one thing, and that was Jesus had come. He ran ahead of the crowd. It was crucial to ensure that his desperate cry for, for help fell on the ears of Jesus, for he knew that no time could be wasted waiting for his turn in line. As he saw Jesus from afar off, he ran with all his might, and once he reached him, he fell at his feet. Master, Master, you have to come quickly. My daughter, my little girl, she's sick. We've tried everything. I've left her there dying. She could die at any moment, and I've left her there because you, you are the only hope that I have left. No doctors have offered me answers, but I have heard. I trust simply by a touch from your hand, she could be healed and she shall live. You must come with me. So seeing his faith, and perhaps his urgency, Jesus follows Jairus as they head toward the town, toward the house where the little girl lay dying, toward the place of Jairus' crisis. Perhaps they, they rise to the crest of a hill just before town, and on the other side, a crowd of hundreds, maybe a crowd of thousands, sees them, and he hears a voice cry, There's Jesus! And then all of a sudden, before you know it, they're swarmed by people, in innumerable amounts. People were thronging them. The text says people were thronging them. They're pressed about on all sides. Individuals clamoring, pressing, pushing, each trying to make their way through to see Jesus for themselves. And I can imagine as this unfolds, Jairus' anxiety rose quite quickly. Time was of the essence here. His daughter was dying, and it was nearly impossible to pass through the crowd that had gathered I imagine him standing off to the side as they try to make their way, pleading with people, please, you, you need to understand, I know that Jesus is here, I know that it's exciting that he's coming, I know that you want to see miracles, but you have to let me through. I don't have any time to waste here, my daughter is dying, please, you have to let me through. But it seemed to be to no avail. People pressed yet the more, and an uneasy feeling began to grow in Jairus' gut. How could people not understand? People know him. They've seen him at the synagogue. People know of the crisis. They know his daughter's sick. Yet they don't seem bothered. No one seems to let up. No one seems to let them through. His pleas are drowned out by the crowd of people thronging for Jesus with problems that seem to be of much lesser concern. And as we read with that, Mark cuts the scene in, in verse number 24. And he leaves the readers perhaps with this image of Jairus and Jesus amidst a sea of these thronging people. And as we mentioned, he sandwiches in this other story and he introduces another character and, and the segue to a, to a, to a new, new scene in this particular story begins in verse number 25. 
the screen fades to white, so to speak, and the flashback begins. It says, 12 years ago, a woman sits in her home in immense pain. An issue of blood agreed upon by most to be a gynecological issue of some sort, and certainly one of no small degree of physiological damage. Mark tells us that she suffers as she spends her life savings and livelihood seeking the assistance of physicians. And we know that this is a significant word because Mark actually uses the word that is translated to suffers only one other time in his gospel, speaking of Jesus himself as he's being beaten and afflicted by the Romans. Mark tells us that not only as she sought physicians here, that not only she didn't improve, rather she grew worse and her suffering extended beyond even that of the physical. In the Jewish custom of the day, there are laws found in Leviticus chapter 15 that when a woman experienced that which comes in a typical manner, um, she was rendered ceremonially unclean until after the time of said manner had passed. She was not to be touched. The things that she touched was not to be touched. She was required to separate herself from her family, friends, and loved ones, and were she to go out into public at all, she was required to disclose to those whom she came across that she was unclean from the typical manner of women so that she could be avoided. Both a woman at this particular time and everything that she touched were considered unclean, effectively isolating them from everything and everyone. And the typical manner expressed in the law was that this separation was to be seven days. However, in the verses following in Leviticus 15, it makes a particular mention that any issue of blood that extends beyond the span of seven days effectively extends one's uncleanness and thus one's isolation until it was properly healed. So this woman sits in her home, not only in pain, but in complete social isolation for 12 years, suffering. Not just from the affliction of her condition, but from a practical death sentence of loneliness. Everything was gone, spent, effectively condemning her to die alone, suffering. But she too had heard news from people clamoring outside that a man named Jesus had come to town. A man who had the power to heal from just a touch. That was her only option. He was her last chance. She had no hope other than this man called Jesus. She arose from her place, and upon exiting her house, she could hear the commotion and the clamor of people further in town. So as she makes her way over there, perhaps she sees the crowd in the distance and she hesitates because she knows what's expected of her due to her condition and that she risks being punished for willingly putting herself in a position to render people unclean. But the suffering was more than she could bear. She carefully navigates through the press. She draws closer and closer to where Jesus was trying to make his way through. And she thinks to herself, just, just the edge of his garment, not even the man himself, just the tip of his clothes. If I can slip through the crowd and touch the hem of his garment, surely, surely that is enough to heal me. And as he passed by, she just barely reaches out her hand and grazes his garment. And immediately, it says, immediately, her issue of blood was dried up. She was healed, cleansed. However, Jesus stops immediately. 
Mark telling us that he perceived virtue had gone out of him. And now the sense of the word virtue here, I want to clarify, we tend to confine it to a certain connotation today concerning uh, purity or moral uprightness. And so then it would be easy to project the idea that she touched Jesus and Jesus is saying, I've been made ceremonially unclean because Jesus knows everything. He knows he's been touched and he knows that he's been touched by this woman. That's not the case here. The word virtue in the text means that, that his, his power had gone out from him. What Jesus sensed is that my power to dispense healing upon an individual has gone out from me um, by someone who has reached out to touch me. So he turns around and he asks out loud, who touched me? And again, we're kind of met with this scene of the disciples that should be amusing to readers because Jesus knows who touched him and the readers know who touched him, but the disciples are like, Jesus, everybody's touching you. Like, what do we care about any one individual? Like, what, how are we supposed to know what they think? Don't you see the crowd around us? But Jesus turns to her immediately. The woman had simply hoped to silently touch his garment as he passed, but I don't know that she expected him it to make him stop. I'm sure he had assumed that, that he would be too busy to investigate who had reached out to him. But Jesus took notice and he looked at her immediately. Jesus stopping to ask who touched him was sure to cause other people to stop for a moment to see what had caught Jesus' attention. As his eyes looked to her immediately, perhaps the eyes of others soon followed. And now an explanation was needed. See, if this woman had been afflicted by this condition for 12 years, she was probably known by face as the woman with the issue of blood. And here she is out in public among all sorts of people, and it's been revealed that you're willingly putting yourself out here, knowing that you're not supposed to, knowing what you're going through, we demand an explanation here. So the woman falls before Jesus and explains what had been done, how she had no hope other than his own direct intervention in her personal crisis how she had no hope amidst the perpetual isolation and suffering of her condition from uncleanness save for his touch. And he tells her in verse number 34, daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Whole, restored, cured, clean. A life of hope ahead of her. The touch of Jesus had defeated her condition, her crisis had been averted. She was whole again and free from her suffering and from her pain, the suffering of her isolation and the hope of her uncleanness. And as we mentioned earlier with this, the story within the story concludes and Mark returns to Jairus. There's still another crisis in this moment. It's a crisis yet unsolved. Verse number 35. The crowd had stopped moving. Jairus noted that Jesus has been caught by something because these two sandwich stories were kind of occur occurring simultaneously. And as, it, as he drew close, wondering why Jesus had stopped, he draws closer to urge Jesus to move forward. And he witnesses this exchange between Jesus and this woman with the issue of blood. And he watches her as she fell at his feet and trembles and explained everything that happened, how she had been suffering for so long and how she touched him and he'd been made whole. And I imagine there's a mixture of emotions in Jairus as he's watching because the anxiety from Jesus stopping means that they're not making progress toward the resolution of his crisis but he had just watched Jesus heal the crisis for another so there's a mixture here of hope and of desperation 
They were so close. Maybe his house could even be seen in the distance. And he listens anxiously as Jesus addresses this woman and telling her that she's been made whole while he's waiting for Jesus perhaps to return to the matter at hand with his daughter. Yet, it says in verse number 35, while he being Jesus yet spake, Jairus feels a hand on his shoulder. He's pulled away from the crowd. He's pulled away from the miracle. And he's pulled away from Jesus. It was someone from his house. Someone that he had left there while his daughter lay dying. Someone who had no business being out here except to tell him something. She's dead, he heard him say. Jairus's crisis had collapsed into catastrophe. It was an outcome no longer within anyone's control. There was no hope of any other outcome beyond death. That which he feared worst in his crisis became the very center and cause of his catastrophe. It was a situation beyond possible intervention. And his hope completely crushed as the voice goes on to say, Why troublest thou the master anymore? At this point, I'm sure everything that Jairus had been through, pressing through the people, running out to seek Jesus and, and pleading with him, seems as though it was all for nothing. The crowd hadn't cared. In spite of his pleas for help, they seemed more concerned about what they needed from Jesus more than they were concerned about the crisis of a little girl's own life. The only crisis of similar magnitude was this woman before them. And as he watched Jesus resolve her crisis just in time, it was as though her situation interrupted the progress toward Jesus resolving his own, towards Jesus healing his daughter. Yet this woman's needs had been met. Her prayers had been answered. But his had not. Among everyone in the crowd, the only one who didn't get he was after from Jesus was Jairus. But before the voice of circumstance is what we'll call it, before the voice of circumstance could press Jairus into relenting into the despair of his disaster, the voice of Jesus in that moment said Jairus. See, Jesus hadn't forgotten about Jairus at all. He was not too busy with the woman and with the circumstances before him. He was not too busy with the crowd that Jairus had pleaded to be pushed aside. The crowd was still there. The woman's still there. Everything's still unfolding. But Jesus stops. While, while the man is still telling Jairus, don't bother Jesus anymore, Jesus says, no, Jairus. Perhaps he even gestures to the woman still kneeling before him. He says, Jairus, do not be afraid. Believe. We know further from the story then that Jairus brings Jesus to his house where his daughter lie dead. And we know the rest of the story. While those in the house did not believe that Jesus had anything left to do in the situation, the outcome was fixed. What could be done about the situation was absolutely nothing. Yet, Jairus watched as Jesus reached out his hand and with a touch raised his daughter from the dead. The touch of Jesus did not come in his crisis, but the touch of Jesus was powerful enough to still make a difference in his catastrophe. And so tonight, it's going to be kind of a different application because I'm willing to bet 
that one of three people sit in here scattered this evening. You may be in the pew, Jairus, in the middle of your crisis. It came out of nowhere, and there is no more hope for you save the chance that God himself intervenes in your circumstance to solve your situation. And you could be struggling. You sit here amidst a crowd of people, amidst a season of busyness. Everyone seems to be thronging and pressing for God's attention. Everyone seems to be thronging and pressing for Jesus to work on their behalf. And it seems to you like nobody knows or maybe even nobody cares about what's currently sitting on your shoulders tonight as you sit here. But just like Jesus cared about Jairus, he cares about you. Tonight, even still, maybe you're Jairus, but this situation is no longer a crisis. Your worst fear has come to pass. The one thing that you asked Jesus to avoid is now a catastrophe. Your crisis can no longer be intervened in because your situation has collapsed into catastrophe. You face the struggle of having watched Others around you receive the answers to their prayers and the solutions to their struggles, all while you waited patiently for God, for Jesus to answer your pleas for help, only for the outcome that you specifically asked him to prevent to come to pass. And I've certainly been there. Perhaps some of you will remember this name being mentioned by pastor at times in the past, but September of last year was the death of a very close friend to Brother Samuel and I. His name was Kalen. Kaylin was diagnosed with a rather rare form of cancer and, and certainly its location in his body and the nature of it equally even more so unique. As update upon update came concerning his diagnosis once we learned that it was malignant and that if not, if not taken action on, if it, if it spread could not be prevented, it would take his life and our entire church family poured ourselves into the ministry of prayer on his behalf and we watched time and again surgery after surgery prayer meeting after prayer meeting every Sunday that, that he would have procedures done he would go through treatments and it seems like the results would be good we drew closer to the results that we were praying for yet not quite and we spent years praying that God would interview, intervene in the crisis of this young man's life and in spite of pushing through the thronging of life surrounding us, the busyness of the seasons, and seeing God answering prayers for seemingly everyone else, we waited patiently for Jesus to answer ours. We waited for the moment that Jesus would reach out his hand and touch him and heal him. And yet Labor Day of last year, the hand from the crowd in the form of an email from the church reached out and pulled those of us involved away. We were close, but he had died. And in some cases, being people that are well-churched and knowing what to say, you know, we could put on the brave face as though we could handle the reality and certainty of his death, claiming faith in a bigger purpose from God. But I can certainly speak for myself and maybe Brother Samuel and for anyone who would have been invested in that crisis that we had to wrestle in that moment with the sinking feeling in our gut as the one thing that we asked for did not happen and a voice tells you why bother Jesus about this anymore. Your situation, your outcome will not change. Your crisis is now 
an unavoidable catastrophe. But Jesus did not leave Jairus hopeless, did he? In fact, he asked, he did more than what Jairus asked for in this situation that Jairus had pleaded him with. You see, Jairus did not ask Jesus to raise his daughter from the dead because Jairus saw death as the final outcome to be avoided. Jesus did not heal her like Jairus had asked him to, but rather in a display of power, he raised up the dead. Now, unfortunately, Jesus did not raise ours, but we watched God do something more incredible with Cailin's testimony in his death than potentially what he could have accomplished in his entire life. So tonight, Jairus, as you struggle in the, with the hopelessness of an unchangeable catastrophe, the, the unchangeable nature of your diagnosis, the relationship before you that lies in shambles, the condition of your body that will not change, remember that God's solution to your catastrophe be to use it to, hit, to display his sovereign power more than you could have dreamed from the solutions that you asked for. Maybe further tonight, finally, you could be the woman. You could be suffering through a crisis, and this isn't a crisis that's lasted for weeks. It's not lasted for months. It could be years. You've suffered long enough to have exhausted every resource and avenue at your disposal and you have no other options unless the hand of God directly intervenes in your circumstance. And it seems inevitable to you that your crisis will collapse into catastrophe. But there's a detail in the story that can sometimes be overlooked in Mark's account concerning how God intended to use this woman's crisis in the big picture. See, Mark tells us in verse number 25, you can even look at me, look at it if you would like. It says that the woman had been suffering for 12 years. It was 12 whole years before she saw God do anything at all in her circumstance. But if we look at verse number 42, it says, And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of 12 years rather interesting detail. See, this, this woman didn't go to Jairus' house with them after she had been healed. She had no way of knowing this amazing coincidence of numbers. Yeah, this was not a coincidence to Jesus, was it? This woman suffered through her crisis for 12 years and saw no solution from every avenue that she pursued. Yet, in the end, Jesus healed her, not simply for the sake of her own faith in him, but that God working through her long suffering, through her, through her patience in her own personal suffering, in her own crisis, and through her trust in Jesus, so that he could give Jairus the faith that he needed to trust Jesus in the time of his catastrophe. That was the greater purpose. She unknowingly endured through years of her crisis so that in an instant God could use her faith to help Jairus in the face of his catastrophe. As I said, any one of you in here tonight could fall into any one of these three categories and maybe nobody knows but you and God. We all inevitably face our own unique crises and catastrophes in life. They're unavoidable. Unfortunately, whether it's a direct result of our sin or not, the fact that we live in a sin-corrupted world makes crises and catastrophes a reality. There's a key takeaway that Mark 
emphasizes from these two stories which have been so carefully put together. See, uncleanness in the scripture represents sin and its effect and the separation that it causes. To any regular individual, a person is subject to the dominating and irreversible power of the unclean, not the unclean to the person. The unclean makes that which it touches unclean. The corruption of sin inevitably and irreversibly makes that which it touches corrupt. Anyone touching the woman with the issue of blood would have been made unclean. Yet when she touched Jesus, Jesus was not made unclean, but rather she was healed of her disease and immediately made clean. Likewise, with Jairus' daughter, though not explicitly stated in the text, there is another principle known in the Old Testament law in a similar area as the, concerning the issue of blood that you are not to touch the deceased as that would also render you unclean. Any physical contact with the dead whatsoever would make you unclean. Yet not even uncleanness through means of death rendered the touch of Jesus powerless. Jesus was not rendered unclean through even contact with death, but rather death itself had to flee because that which is unclean is cleansed by Jesus. Tonight, you might be facing the voice inside of you, the hand on your shoulder that's telling you your situation is unavoidable. The solution that you are asking for has not come to pass. The one thing you ask Jesus for is not what you got. But you have to reject the voice that tempts you to trouble not the master any further. Because tonight, Jairus, woman, those of you in the midst of your own personal crises and catastrophes, you are to be not afraid, but believe. Find your hope in God and in Jesus Christ, who in spite of the corruption of a world ruined by sin, cares enough about your circumstances to touch you. Even with the uncleanness of our sinful world surrounding us and permeating us so that our circumstances can reflect his power and glory. So tonight, we can have hope in Jesus during our times of crisis or catastrophe because his touch has the power to overcome the uncleanness of sin and the power of death. We can have hope in Jesus. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.